Hello, I'm Dr Kat Arney. This podcast is part of a mini-series of interviews with speakers from the 2022 Annual Conference of the Adelphi Genetics Forum, a learned society that aims to promote research and discussion concerning the scientific understanding of human heredity. Formerly known as the Galton Institute, and before that, the Eugenics Education Society, the society has changed its name to the Adelphi Genetics Forum to firmly reject and distance itself from the discredited and damaging ideas of its namesake, Francis Galton, widely viewed as the founder of eugenics. This year's conference, titled Living with the Eugenic Past, brought together expert speakers to grapple with the problem of how best to tackle the subject of eugenics. What are the demands of justice when it comes to the victims of eugenics? How should universities and other institutions involved in eugenics deal responsibly with that involvement? And can present-day biology education and research be improved to help safeguard the future from the mistakes of the past? Much of Francis Galton's academic life is associated with University College London, or UCL, and he bequeathed not only his archive, but also an endowment for the UK's first professorial chair in eugenics. The university's Galton Laboratory was finally folded into a larger department of genetics, evolution and environment in 2013, and the Galton Lecture Theatre was only renamed in 2020. So, why did Galton's name persist for so long? And, looking back, why was he even supported by the university in the first place? These are exactly the kinds of questions that Joe Kane, Professor of History and Philosophy of Biology at UCL, has been trying to answer. Well, basically, my research today in my talk was about why do institutions say yes to bad things when they really should be saying no? So I use a case study of eugenics at my university. And really the question is, why did they say yes? I mean, it seems like a really bad idea and it seems like a thing they really should not have gotten invested in. So I wanna know why. And, and my answer was, I, I really don't think it's about the content of eugenics or the subject of the science. I think there's lots of little tiny local reasons why they said yes. And so, savvy institutional players can play the game and get what they want. They get the institution to say yes, even though in hindsight you look back and go, why did we do that? That seemed a really bad idea. And even when people are inside the institution are saying, no, don't go that way, they still say yes. So that's the nature of the talk is why do institutions say yes when they really should be saying no? In the case of UCL, what were some of those things, those factors that you uncovered? It's all kinds of things. So, I mean, for example, a person could be known as a good company player. Sort of, they go by the rules, they stay in their lane, they're mutually supportive. Those people tend to live life relatively uncontested or somebody who makes the institution look good or somebody who brings in a lot of money and credibility. In the case that I was talking about with eugenics, there are a couple of moments where things converge such that everybody's really happy if the project goes forward, but it's not because of the content. It doesn't even look like they know or care about it. So the weird thing is when we look back and we look at the people who approved it, we say, well, they're obviously in cahoots. They're obviously working together with these people. They're obviously sympathetic to the ideas. 
but maybe not. Maybe they're just getting something for themselves. In one case where the chief executive of the institution says, yeah, go with this. I mean, they're remembered as a really sympathetic, pro-eugenics kind of person. But in fact, they're doing it because they want something else out of this. They, they want the project because the project makes the university look credible. It looks like it raises the reputation of the university. And there's even a letter that says, thanks for joining us. You're making us look good. And you think, well, that has nothing to do with the eugenics. So again, back to that idea of a savvy institutional player. That's the thing to watch here. And the reason why I'm, I'm after this is... It's not that I'm trying to hide anything. It's not because I'm sympathetic with eugenics at all. Absolutely not. But really, it's asking why do institutions say yes? Because I want to know how we can stop this in the future, not just with eugenics, but with all kinds of other potentially dodgy, scary, frightening, dangerous, perverse, racist, sexist, anything biased, motivated research. How do we how do we keep an eye on things so that we say yes when it's good and we say no when it's bad? That does beg the question, who decides what's good and what's bad? Eugenics at the time was, some argue that it was always seen as, as dodgy science, but some argue that it was seen as a legitimate science at the time. How do we decide what are legitimate programs of research and what are not? Well, the most important way to answer that question is the people at the top probably are not the best people to say yes or no. And I am not the person to say it. But the thing we've learned after decades of talking about anti-racism and anti-sexism and anti-so many things is diverse groups make better decisions. And so if I had my way, what I would do is I'd have conversations within the institutions so that they monitor themselves as things go along. And they include people who are impacted by the research as well as creating the research. People who have nothing to do with the research at all, uh, looking in and asking just, I suppose, my grandmother would call it common sense. So what I would like to say is, who watches the researchers? Everybody. And I think that we need more conversations about where are these projects going and why? Where are the limits to things? And, and I think there's lots of examples in the past that we can use where more diverse conversations about topics cut off the bad stuff and amplify the good stuff. So we get more of what we want and a lot less of what we don't. And so to answer your question, more diverse groups coming into the conversation, that's a plus. You've talked about the idea that, you know, there's good people, people make your institution look good, big cheeses, but also money does play a role in academic research and perhaps increasingly so as the costs go up. Is that something that also encourages poor decisions about the kinds of research that gets done? Uh, not all money is the same. So when it comes to money coming into a university, there's lots of routes in. The stuff that I'm worried about is the, like, can I just call it unregulated? Or, or it's the money that just shows up, say, from a venture capitalist or from a philanthropist kind of on their own steam and governed by themselves. And that is so often a very risky place because nobody gives money for nothing. Nobody gives money for nothing in return. And so there's always something going on. Sometimes universities are really good at vetting 
the routes of that money coming in. Where is it coming from? Is it dodgy or isn't it? Um, and then other times we're just terrible about that. And we have lots of examples of that. In the case that I was talking about today, it looked very self-serving from the start. And it's one of those examples where it's a small amount of money quietly presented in a seemingly easy way, really simple for an institution to say yes. They should have said no. These days, there's so much money coming towards universities, and universities are desperate for money for doing all kinds of things that it's hugely tempting, not just to take dodgy money, but to convince yourself that there's kind of dual uses, and, and it'll be okay. We'll always stay on the right side of the line, and the dual use activities that universities are buying into now. A lot of universities, not just in the UK, but around the world, becoming the research and development facility for all kinds of industries. It's really easy to bring that money in and say, well, no, we, we wanted to develop that project to do something good. Yeah, people can do it for bad too, but don't worry about that. No one will ever do it. And of course we know, 20 years later, we look back and go, Oh man, we really shouldn't have done that. That was a mistake. And again, raising the issue, who's deciding? How do we get universities to regularly reflect on how do we do good and how do we not do bad? That is important because, you know, they, we will make mistakes and we'll be incredibly sorry that we did. But we need to make fewer mistakes and we need to make more better decisions. And if we go in those directions, then I think we're on the right track. Thinking about that reflection, how long did it take UCL to look at Galton's work and the fruits of Galton's work and think, ooh, have we, have we done a bad? Ah, uh, how long has UCL been not paying attention? Well, well, I think they've been paying attention all along, and this is the weird thing. And so UCL has had a relationship, close relationship sometimes, with eugenics since the beginning of the 20th century. And all along you can identify people who said it was a bad thing, said they shouldn't do it, tried to minimize it, tried to get it out. Mostly they failed in some periods. Sometimes they really succeeded. But what happens in a lot of that history, and again, this is the, the really overt, tough stuff. That's easy to spot. The really ugly work is really easy to find and, and condemn. My interest is when, when it, it looks like it goes away, but it's still kind of there. And so that notion of dual use or, or drawing a line between the good and the bad. There's a lot of moments where researchers around UCL would say, yeah, Galton, Pearson, Fisher, these eugenicists, they, they did really great work. And then there's a dark side to them. And the great work is what we celebrate. And we don't talk about the other stuff. And we just leave the other stuff to the side. And that, uh, what language is that of, of building a boundary where you say good, bad, and we're only going to accept the good? My thought is you're trying to hide something there. But it's not hiding in the sense of like hiding a crime. What you're doing is you're trying to reconcile yourself because you know that there's good and bad and they're brought together like that. And what I think would be a success is if we find ways to have conversations where those two, the good and the bad come together, or at least the good and, and the bad are talked about in a way so that everybody can make their decisions about how to 
accommodate them or reject them in their own lives. And so I think the UCL did a really good job over a long period of time of reflecting on what was good, but that's only true in some places. And I think UCL did a really bad job of allowing people to play these uncontested games of saying the dark side we won't talk about. We know it's there, but we'll just move on. We are starting to see a move towards the names of people like Galton being removed from things that he's associated with, his name being taken off the Galton Laboratory, his name being removed from the Galton Institute, the renaming to the Adelphi Genetics Forum. We're seeing things like statues being taken down, the debate about the statue of Cecil Rhodes in Oxford. Where do you stand on, on this stuff um, where people say, well, no, we, this is part of history, yeah. removing these people is, is brushing it under the carpet, versus people who say, we shouldn't be celebrating these people anymore. Yeah. Um, what should we do with the statues and the names and the commemoratives and all that stuff? Dump them. Get rid of them. That's my view. As a historian, that's my view. Does it take them out of history? Are you kidding me? The library is still full. There's the internet. There's zillions of ways that people can learn about them. My own view about names are names should inspire people today. We're talking about heritage and we're not talking about history. Heritage is the use of the past for purposes of the present. And so putting a name up on a building is about heritage. Putting a painting on a wall is about heritage. Putting a statue up or taking it down is us using the past for purposes in the present. That's heritage. And what I think is we make a mistake in letting 80 years ago decisions about heritage guide us because we need to use the past today for our own purposes. My view on, on names on buildings, change them every 10 years. Do it automatic because every generation has heroes and villains and let them have them. And if that inspires people to learn a little bit more, success. If that inspires people to learn something and argue about it, excellent. Play by the rules and argue. If that inspires people to say, you know what, this place is for me because that name, I want to not only be like them, but I want to be the next them. And if that does that in a university, are you kidding me? That's the game. That's what we do. So we inspire people. And if we can do that with a name on a wall, fantastic. If taking down a name makes somebody feel I'll tell you the worst story I ever heard about UCL from a student is a student looks at a building named after somebody that they hate and they said, this place isn't for me. I've worked at UCL for more than 20 years. I stand at the front gates all the time and say, get in here. We want you here. I, I have trained my whole life for the people who've just arrived to start their education at the university. I want them there. And to have somebody stand in front of a building and say, it makes me feel like I don't belong. That's the biggest crime for someone in my profession is to make somebody feel like they don't belong. Now, students may come and they, and they may struggle. Students may come and they may disagree. Students may come and really try to challenge us. But at the same time, to feel like they don't deserve to walk in the gates, that's a failure. So if that, in order to get past that failure, we change a name on a building, you know, give me the screwdriver. I'll do it myself. Thanks to Joe Kane. You can find out more about the Adelphi Genetics Forum, including their grants, awards and publications at adelphigenetics.org. You can check out the rest of this series on the Genetics Unzipped podcast feed. 
Just search for Genetics Unzipped on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This series was produced by the team at First Create the Media. That's Kat Arney, Sally LePage and Emma Werner, with help from Ed Prosser and Frankie Pike. Our music is Drops of H2O by Jay Lang, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks for listening and goodbye.